Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I am in studio in Tucson, Arizona, live streaming from our uh, home church here, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And in studio with me is our senior pastor, Scott Richards. The very same. The same guy who was here yesterday. I, 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 I have ID. I can prove it. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, his... Uh, Unless this is one of those AI things, in no. which case all bets are off. This is a deep fake. This is yeah. not really Pastor Scott's hanging yeah. out at home with his wife eating yeah. great barbecue. Yep. <laughs> well, in another universe. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, also what's to do with us is our walking Bible encyclopedia, Sean Richards. How are you, sir? Then. Good. That's a good thing. I want that. <laughs> We're working on it. <clears throat> Well, we're so grateful that you are here with us today. Um, this is a Bible Answer program. We live stream every weekday, uh, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We are located here in Tucson, Arizona, and this is a place where people can come and be honest about questions they have about the Christian faith, um, whether it be the application or the interpretation of a specific passage or just asking general questions about certain truth claims that Christians make or that Christianity makes and if you have questions about that we would encourage you to join us and you can do so in multiple ways of course we live stream to uh, the, the, the main social media platforms uh, we live stream to Facebook and of course just join the live stream and simply use the comment section to ask your questions so we live stream to facebook.com CCF Tucson is the extension or you can just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and find us that way we also live stream to YouTube on that platform you would search for a reason for hope and uh, if you want to go directly to our channel just hit youtube.com forward slash at a reason for hope 546 for those of you listening on the radio you probably be hearing us after the fact so if you would love to engage with us and actually be a part of the program and ask a question that's how you'll do it <clears throat> we also archive our program on rumble so if you want to go back and look at some previous episodes uh, we categorize them by the questions asked the top three questions asked in that program so it's easy to go through and and listen to past programs you can do that of course at facebook and youtube but it's uh, also available on rumble if you prefer that platform we, for those of you who don't want to be on social media at all, <laughs> we also live stream to our website. So if you go to the web, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and hit that watch live tab, you can find us there as well. It's got a great nifty little um, <clears throat> chat box and a little button for making prayer requests. You can comment, ask questions, and we'd encourage you to take advantage of that if you'd like to. Now, if you are part of our local community here in Tucson, we want to invite you to download our app. We have an app that's available on the Apple and Google Play Store. Uh, you just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, search for that uh, little red icon with the dove on it, and you can download the app. There, you can not only watch this program, also watch the live stream of all of our services, you can take notes. It's got a great little digital Bible attached to it. So you can uh, highlight texts, really robust ability to have a digital Bible with you everywhere you go. You can listen to archives of past messages we've taught, uh, over 20 years of messages. <clears throat> so you, if you want to go through a particular book of the Bible, you can join Pastor Scott as he takes you through the entire counsel of God's Word. You can also 
add us to your channels on the Amazon and Roku products. So if you have an Amazon Fire Stick or a Roku device, uh, search for us, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, add us to your channel listing, and you can watch our services and watch this program live each and every day. And if you want to ask a question more discreetly, you can do so by emailing us directly at questionsforhope at gmail.com. I am monitoring these various locations throughout the program, so uh, if you do ask a question, I will try to get to it as quickly as I can. And last but not least, please, I would encourage you to follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on X, formerly Twitter, and his handle on that platform is at Scott R4H. That's at Scott R4H. And he is monitoring that usually throughout the program. So if you happen to tweet, I don't know if they still call it tweeting or do we call it Xing? I don't know. But if you happen to tweet a question, we'll catch that as well. So you can take advantage of that if you prefer. Yep. Let's take a moment to pray and we'll get to your questions. Absolutely. Sean, would you be so kind? Once a few glances have been exchanged. <laughs> yeah, thank Who's going to pray today? <laughs> thank you that we have the chance to be here, Dad. Thank you that we can come to you on the basis of mercy and relate to your people on the basis of grace. Allow your power to be demonstrated here, not just in calling us to lives of deeper fellowship with you, but further joy in our service to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <clears throat> well, we had a really good uh, email question that we got about um, translations of the Bible. And the question is as follows. Um, Christina wanted to know, after having been studying Genesis 1 through 11 uh, in, a, in a book uh, by the author Jen Wilkins, um, it's a study of Genesis 1 through 11, and the author uses the ESV, the English Standard Version. However, a translation that this um, questioner has never used and usually uses the New King James Version Sorry about that, New <laughs> King James. I hit the button and it just didn't sticky, sticky button. But I don't know. I People on radio have no idea trick. what we're talking about. I know, here, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, Christina uses the New King James or the New American Standard and found the ESV translation of Genesis three sixteen in particular very jarring. Uh, for instance, in the second half of the verse, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. In the other versions, it says that Eve's desire shall be for her husband. First of all, Christina wants to know how accurate is the English Standard Version in general, and how badly does this change in, in translation skew the interpretation of the passage? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, the ESV, or the English Standard Version of the Bible, it's a revision of what used to be known as the Revised Standard Version. It came out in 2001 and has undergone a number of different revisions. Now, the general editor of the ESV is very uh, highly respected and very solid theologian, J.I. Packer, uh, and the translator sought and uh, received permission from the National Council of Churches to use their 1971 edition as the English textual basis for the ESV. Uh, diff difficult uh, passages were resolved by using the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and so on. Well, the idea behind the ESV uh, is that uh, it is meant to be a word-for-word -word translation. Now, we talked a little bit about uh, the difference between word-for-word -word versus dynamic equivalent uh, versus paraphrases. Paraphrases would be what somebody's take is on the Bible, sort of put in a format that would make you think you're reading the Bible, but it's really someone else's 
take. Uh, the original Living Bible was that way. It's Kenneth Taylor's uh, narrative, if you will, on uh, what the Bible says. And that's why uh, I remember reading uh, the Living Bible early on uh, as a young Christian, and I kept looking in the margins, and it just had all these implied, implied, implied. Well, that was Kenneth Taylor's take on particular passages. Uh, the Passion Version of the Bible, oh. which I think is one of Sean's favorites, by the way. Yeah, we got a <laughs> question about it a few weeks back, and it wasn't <laughs> glowing in its yeah. review. Now, well, when I was well first... all, the, all the passion basically was, was this sort of free-thinking uh, relating of the Bible. This pastor did while in his basement over a few weeks. Uh, essentially, that's what it is. So we don't really recommend those unless, of course, you know, you really just want to see what this pastor thinks about the Bible. You're not really studying the Bible. You're studying this pastor's thoughts about the Bible uh, in kind mm -hmm. of an oblique way. Uh, the idea of dynamic equivalence, that's where things like the NIV come in. Uh, it's more a thought-for-thought thought translation. And the idea behind that is making the Scripture as, as accessible to a modern reader as possible while not being a paraphrase, uh, attempting to be a translation, but having enough freedom within it and the thought-for-thought thought mentality that you're somewhat in between a paraphrase and a word-for-word -word translation. Uh, can be good for reading long stretches of Scripture at a time, the NIV. Uh, certain Bible commentaries like uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary are keyed to the international version. Um, not bad, um, not great in my opinion. It's more fluent and colloquial than, say, the word-for-word -word translation. Then you have word-for-words. And that would be like, uh, say, for instance, uh, the New American Standard, uh, the King James Version, the New King James Version, uh, the ESV uh, would fit into those categories. And that is an attempt by the translators to render as much as possible in an English language format, uh, a word-for-word -word translation from the original language to take as much of the uh, finagle factor, if you will, out of, out of the translation. So, uh, you know, to me, uh, the New King James Version of the Bible is a great uh, uh, confluence of what we should really be looking for because it's an excellent word-for-word -word translation, removes the archaic language, the 1611 uh, translation of the Bible. You don't have to be an Elizabethan Englishman to understand uh, what's going on. Um, I've run into some uh, Bible commentators, John Corson being one who really likes the old King James. Uh, I saw in a particular passage, I was reading in his commentary on Ezekiel, where they used the word Sith to describe <laughs> a particular word. I went, oh, Star Wars in the Bible. But there you go. Uh, you know, th things like that that wouldn't really jibe with how we speak English today. Uh, and, and so that's, that's the translation that we use uh, here at uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship. Now, the English Standard Version uh, basically gets complaints from both sides. Some say it's too literal. Others say it's too dynamic. Uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, kind of like uh, Calvary Chapels, uh, the Baptists think we're Pentecostals and the Pentecostals think we're Baptists. Uh, if you're getting static from both sides. Maybe, just maybe, uh, you're, you're doing your job. Uh, again, uh, some sample verses of this uh, in the ESV, 
Uh, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glorious, the only uh, Son from the Father, the King, New King James would say, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, their rendering of uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Again, the word begotten isn't used there. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, so, you know, when you take a look at that, uh, you know, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for instance, says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that uh, no one may boast. In New King James would say, you've been saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves. Uh, so you see there is a bit of an interpretive uh, intersection going on there. As far as uh, how uh, Genesis uh, 3 and uh, verse uh, 16 was rendered there, uh, what you're running into there is a bit of that um, sort of neither... Uh, fish nor fowl uh, critique of the ESV uh, that you get in there. It is, in a sense, an interpretive rendering of the, the traditional, your desire shall be for your husband, uh, but, you know, and, and so on. Uh, you know, the, the idea behind that would be uh, the uh, interpretation that as a result of the fall uh, that uh, men and women would naturally blanch from our God-ordained uh, roles within the family. Uh, women would want to assert, men would want to be passive, and so on. You probably heard a lot of sermons on that sort of thing. What that does is it takes that mentality and it codifies it into that particular passage. Don't really think that's the best way uh, to just let the passage speak. It almost makes that jump from you know, the category of the New American Standard and the King James, the New King James, and so on, over more into New International Versionville, in, in, in my particular opinion. Now, uh, what does that mean? Should we throw out our ESVs? No, uh, but a, a real good thing to do when you come across, say, something like this, is to use a, uh, a Bible program you can get online that will show you how a particular passage is rendered in different passages and can show you uh, say, for instance, the, the, the Hebrew that's involved there. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the other ways that it's maybe used elsewhere in the text. For example, Teshukadech, uh, I believe, would be the pronunciation. His desire will be for you, yeah. or in your desire will be for your husband. Uh, it's used in the very next chapter describing Cain's relationship with sin, that his desire is to rule over you. So it kind of notes a negative tone there. Yeah. But when we're talking about, again... But you wouldn't need necessarily to read the Hebrew to know that because the same word translated desire, desire is rendered there in both places. So. But And that's what I think is so important because when people get all hot and bothered about, oh, different translations, how do we know we're actually reading the Bible? Well, understand the issue here is in English, not in <coughs> Hebrew, where the Bible was actually written. Right. What we use and what, to their credit, the... Um, translators of the King James Version and these others were using was the Hebrew text from the Masoretic translation in the ninth century. Now the Hebrews there, now this is full transparency and granted, they did make alterations in order to respond to Christians that were pointing them to their own Old Testament and saying, look, there's the Messiah there, and then they would try to skew the uh, translation and say, oh, well, no, it doesn't say in Psalm 22, for instance, they pierce my hands and my feet. It says, like a lion, my hands and my feet. 
making nonsense of the passage in order right. to get around a messianic conversation. But the Hebrew never changed. Right. They just refused to present it to anyone other than people who already agreed with their conclusions. Right. So when we're looking at the Hebrew text and people honestly just putting it from this language to this language, English is so diverse that it has to make concessions in certain places, which is right. why we have a slew of translations. But the foundation of the text it's taken from can be checked up on, can be clarified, and the rest of the text as well in its proper context can clarify those issues as well. And let's be honest, even if it were left ambiguous as to the significance of desire, we see enough of the impacts of the fall to not need to know what problem ladies have in regards to a fallen sinful relationship, or men for that matter. We have plenty of uses or abuses of desire, both good and bad. The point of emphasis was the desire of all nations, which was mentioned in the previous two verses. But that then being said, the Masoretic text is the one that you need to pay attention to, because when we look at around 900 years after the time of Christ, you look at the Old Testament and go, that's a funny thing, because the Old Testament's actually more recent than the New Testament. So if we're going off that as our source of information, how do we know that not only the Hebrews, but the Christians didn't alter Old Testament text? Well, the best way to do it is to look for as early as possible a source, compare it to translations over time, and go, did they reliably copy it, or were there doctrinal? Not like conceptual errors, like how many horses could fit in Solomon's stable, right? right? But actual concepts about God that got added in or altered over time. All of the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, um, and that's where the joy of the Dead Sea Scrolls comes in, because we found a complete, save for the Book of Esther, copy of the Old Testament with copies upon copies right. of those books, the most significant of which was the book of Isaiah. You, you can see it in a museum today. The fact that it has lasted so long in that condition is amazing. But we compared it to how those verses were translated, Genesis included, to the Masoretic text, and over 1,100 years of transmission, no changes as far as doctrine that we would take away from it. Right. Then we go 1,100 years more to the modern day, to the Masoretic text. Well, English is definitely funky, but no changes in that either. Right. We're still using it as a reference. So when it comes to licenses, and this, just to recap the point, there's dynamic equivalent, what I think, and there's word-for-word -word translation. Dynamic equivalent can be fun, but not recommended for personal study. Word-for-word -word is recommended for study because it's referencing back the Bible, which is what we want to be reading. Yeah, and you know, the other thing that I would emphasize in all of this, and it's so important to understand because sometimes you hear these uh, conversations, it seems a little bit like inside baseball and, and you know, gosh, you know, all these uh, quibblings and, and discussions about, you know, and, and people uh, will say, well, then, you know, how can I as just a untrained layperson understand the message of the Bible and there's all of this, this hoo-ha? Well, you know, a lot of it is a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing uh, because here's the bottom line. Uh, if you were to say, come to the text in question, your desire shall be for your husband. Okay, if that's all we had there, then there'd be a lot of room for people to say, well, what does that mean? Uh, you know, does that mean, you know, the continue to be attracted? Does it mean to be in an antithetical situation? Does it mean to be in opposition? Does it mean conflict? Does it mean to uh, rule over? Uh, we really want to know. 
But the bottom line is the very same word is used in another context almost immediately uh, in Genesis chapter 4. And this is the really wonderful thing about the Bible. It's self-interpreting. And by that, I don't mean we're, we're using an uh, exercise in circular reasoning. But when we say that a particular verse of the Bible means this in the, 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 the sense of interpretation, not necessarily in the sense of application, but interpretation, uh, we have to be able to say, okay, this verse dealing with this subject, right? My take on this has to be corroborated by the other passages in the scripture that deal with the very same issue. And what I say, the scripture says, in the broad strokes of a particular issue, say salvation, for instance, has got to be composed of all of those individual verses. But all those individual verses also have to fall in line with what the overall message of the Bible is regarding that particular subject. You know, for instance, if I were to say, uh, well, you know, in, in my uh, opinion, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, uh, you know, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, that the, the word works there really uh, doesn't mean works. It really kind of means, uh, you know, faith that works. And so you have to do all these different things. Let me give you my laundry list of all the things you got to do in order to be saved. Uh, you know, okay, we can ask ourselves that uh, a question then. Uh, does the Bible back that point of view? Well, there's an entire book of the New Testament that would refute that point of view. It's called the book of Galatians, about what it means to truly be saved, and that is by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and that alone. So, you know, really important for us to be able to understand that uh, you know, God designed his uh, word to be understandable. That doesn't mean there aren't passages in the Bible will kind of blow our minds. And uh, as Chuck Smith always used to say, I'm going to file that away in my uh, file for further information needed, you know. Uh, but uh, there are going to be some of those. But the vast majority of what the Bible has to say is very, very easy to understand. You know, again, I love what Proverbs 8 says about that, that his word is plain to those who read it. In other words, the plain meaning of the scripture is what we should always be going through. And if anybody comes to you, and I say this, uh, I don't consider myself to be a linguist or a scholar, but I do have a three-year master's degree with an emphasis in biblical languages. I, I would say this to you. I have yet to find any verse in the Bible whose understanding turns on someone being conversant in the original languages that you can't understand this unless you've had this, this training. If you look at it in its, in its grammatical, literal, historical context, you ask what verses came before it, what verses came after it, what does the Bible say on this particular subject? Uh, the vast majority of things you're gonna find in the Bible are very, very clear. In fact, I think our main gripe of the Bible is kind of what Mark Twain was famously quoted as saying, ain't those parts of the Bible that I don't understand that disturb me, it's the parts of the Bible I do understand that disturb me. So I think that's that's a good place to leave it. Thanks. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, if you're interested, uh, <clears throat> as Pastor Scott mentions, uh, that website that he mentioned, I, th I think you mentioned it yesterday, but I don't know if you mentioned it today, BibleHub.com. Yeah, yeah, I really like it. Place. Yeah. Very, very great place to go. Blue Letter Bible is also a really great resource as well. Awesome. Yeah. 
Garcia wants to know, a lot of people are speculating that the red heifer they took to Israel will get the third temple to be built again. Is this a sign that Jesus will return soon? Yeah, um, the individual asked the question, clarified, they don't have this view. They want to know if that's actually the case. Uh, the red heifer, for those of you who don't know, it's a type of cow, uh, generally reddish in color, and it was one of the first sacrifices that was offered when Israel had their tabernacle and later their temple. It had to be, it, you had to use the ashes of a red heifer in order to dedicate uh, the altar and the tabernacle. Yeah, and those were important parts of the purpose of the tabernacle and temple because that's where sacrifices were offered. And the, the modern concept of holy water, it was inclusive in this because the water they'd use to sprinkle the priest had to have the ash of this heifer mixed into it, so it's, it's kind of musty. But the uh, whole idea behind it is the ashes would continuously be mixed with a new animal and a new animal over time, ultimately tying back to the first heifer that was offered before the presence of the Lord himself. Right. Uh, so that's the significance of that. So when we're talking about people uh, getting heifers ready, so to speak, or breeding heifers in Israel for the purpose. The Temple Institute's been doing this for a very long time, and they've been ready and available at the moment that they can actually start offering sacrifices again. But the idea that this is a sign of the Lord's return is not necessarily going against Scripture, but it's kind of missing the point of emphasis on where Scripture tells us to focus. Now, obviously, uh, you and I are quoted often in quoting Don Stewart's uh, wise observation that when it comes to God, God's prophetic calendar or clock, the hour hand is Israel, the minute hand is Jerusalem, right. and the temple mount is the second hand. Yep. And if anything going on there, we pay attention, but that doesn't mean it's fulfillment, a prophecy. Jesus didn't affirm it, the Old Testament prophets didn't affirm it, they didn't draw attention to the heifer as a sign of the Lord's return. What we're told as far as the Lord's return is concerned is that it would be unanticipatable in regards to those anticipating it. We call it the doctrine of imminency. And I use those words not because I'm coming up with new doctrine. I'm just trying to specify my words because they are so easily twisted by people who would disagree with me. When it comes to the statement, the plain statement of Jesus in Matthew 24, no man knows the day or the hour, not the Father, or not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but the Father only. The right. Father's put these things into his own authority, Acts chapter 1 says. So if it's not something that's going to be revealed, that to the audience Jesus was speaking to, not just literally, that no one would know the day or the hour as far as the disciples were concerned, kind of dodging the whole misunderstanding in the early church of, oh, there are some here who will not see death until the kingdom of uh, heaven comes in its glory. Right. John the Apostle regularly said, not what was meant even yeah. in the gospel itself. He said, not saying this in John 21, but describing Peter's physical death. Yeah. That being said, he brings it all back to understanding that every Christian's, and this is further affirmed by Paul's letters, especially in Titus, every Christian's attitude should be looking to hasten the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. But when it comes to the perspective we have towards it, the only thing that we've seen as far as a super significant sign isn't things we're told in Scripture will lead to the coming of Christ, but things that will already be in place 
when Christ comes, and that's where I think the misunderstanding is. So will there be a temple during the time we know as the Great Tribulation, following the Lord's coming for his church, but before his second coming, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 12, I believe, mm -hmm. setting foot on the Mount of Olives? Well, we'd say absolutely. The Antichrist can't put an end to sacrifice and offering and declare himself to be God sitting in the temple of God, claiming that he is God, see Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if there's no temple. Right. <laughs> so all that then being said, will there be a temple? How could a temple be constructed so hastily? Well, you look at modern technology and construction equipment, we can put together a lot in a short amount of time. And I think the heifer would fit categorically into that. There's always someone ready. And if they need a heifer, they can get a heifer really quick. Yeah. But the point of emphasis is that when we saw, among other things, like the temple, like the ability to communicate internationally and all people to see a singular event, things that are described rather nonchalantly by the Apostle John in Revelation that we're taking for granted in the world we live in today, what is the sign that makes us all really pay attention? It's not the cows, it's not the uh, communications network, it's what? The center focus of God's dealings with mankind from the beginning. The nation of Israel became a nation again, and that's what makes people go, oh, Ezekiel 37 was literal. I wonder what else could be, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. thus the resurgence of p perspectives on the end times like dispensationalism and Zionism, which we affirm. But the point is just that. When it comes to the heifer, it's something associated with, something that would have to be in place during that time, not the thing that leads into it itself. Because when you say, the Bible talked about this, people are looking for, like, the red heifer shall be offered, and then you know that the Lord's time is nigh. That's not what's being talked about. Understand the difference. Understand what we do know for certain. It's that we can't know until it happens. Right. Just yeah. noting that. But then with that in mind as well, what is the significance of the heifer? It's all tied in the temple, which we may not see until after the Lord takes his church out of the way. Yeah, I think this fits in the category of some interesting developments that can certainly be greasing the skids, if you will, setting the players in place uh, for uh, the, the rise of uh, the events that we see in the end times. Uh, you know, again, uh, really interesting article on this. You might want to take a look at it. It's on the gotquestions.org web, website. Just to look up Red Heifer. And uh, they've, they've got uh, a really good uh, breakdown about what the sacrifice was all about. But one of the things they say in it that I think was uh, particularly fascinating is uh, that uh, there was a report in uh, September 15th, 2022, that five flawless red heifers from Texas had arrived in Israel. Uh, the, the problem with the red heifer sacrifice is that it has to be without spot or blemish. No defect it has to be pure red, no white spots or anything like this. Well, apparently five of these red heifers uh, arrived in Israel in 2022. Well, interesting, interesting development. Could it be moving in that direction? Quite possibly. Uh, you know, th according to rabbinic tradition, uh, there have been nine red heifers sacrificed since Moses' time. Since the destruction of the second temple, no red heifers have been slaughtered. Uh, the rabbi Maimonides taught that the tenth red heifer would be sacrificed by Messiah himself. Hmm. And, and so the idea of uh, you know organizations like the Temple Mount Institute 
when they talk about the red heifers being there, uh, they would lay great stress upon that, great stress upon the uh, imminent building of the temple. But there's a lot of things that we're seeing in the news that kind of fit this, this category. One that was getting a lot of traction on the internet earlier is that uh, you know they're talking about the Abraham Accords and uh, the, the final piece of the puzzle, bringing the Saudis in under this particular arrangement. Well, uh, there's been some scuttlebutt that uh, the UN is going to be having a, uh, a, a seven-year uh, conglomeration of a lot of things they have wanted to accomplish regarding globalism. And that uh, part and parcel of this is folding in the peace agreement between the Saudis and the Israelis in under that seven-year agreement that the UN is looking at. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, tomorrow. I really wanted to dig in a little bit more and get some of the details on it. But when people see that, they go, seven-year agreement. Wow, Israel. Wow, peace in the Middle East. You know, Could this be setting the stage for the strong covenant with many for seven years? Could. Uh, is it? No, not yet, because the Antichrist has to do it. it it's like when a, uh, a financial uh, uh, technology uh, thing happens. Uh, people say, well, could this be the mark of the beast? Well, you know, again, now you can go to Whole Foods and just stick your hand under a little reader there. You don't even have to use your credit card, and it will read your fingerprints and go ahead and you know process your transaction. You'll say, is that like the mark of the beast? Well, it certainly could be like the mark of the beast. Is it the mark of the beast? No, because nobody in Whole Foods is asking you to bow down and worship an idol of a worldwide <laughs> dominating dictator in order to participate in the system. Right? Under penalty of not death. Yet, anyway. Under penalty of death. There's not a guy with a guillotine saying, you don't cooperate, uh, come over to customer service and we'll take care of you. Uh, you know, are, are these moving in that direction? Uh, possibly. Are these direct fulfillments of biblical prophecy? Mm, maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, I, I just think what you said, Sean, was, was so right on. Uh, we, more than any generation, uh, for a long, long time, have more reasons to be looking up, more reasons to have that Maranatha spirit, Lord Jesus, come quickly mm -hmm. in our hearts than anyone else because Israel's back in the land. Uh, by the way, uh, another interesting stat, I'll just throw this in uh, at no additional charge, as Rosh Hashanah approaches, a really interesting series of articles now, they're saying that uh, Israel is now approaching a population of 10 million Jews. 10 million. Wow. I mean, to stop and think of where Israel was even 100 years ago and to see what God has done. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're seeing passages like uh, Ezekiel uh, 36 and onward being fulfilled mm -hmm. right before our very eyes. So when I look at Israel being back in the land, it tells me something. Yeah, you know, when Zion's built up, you know, the king will appear in glory. Mm -hmm. uh, time to, uh, you know, get serious about things is our good friend, Joel Rosenberg would say, if you're out there and you're planning a major sin in your life, in light of all the stuff that is going on, I would definitely put it off. <laughs> because, Delay. Because, Delay. <laughs> because Jesus could come at any moment. Mm. Now, what's your take uh, from a New Testament perspective of the rabbi's idea that the Messiah would come and actually make a sacrifice? Is that, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine Jesus actually doing that if, if they're wrong about the Messiah not having come and Jesus returns, would, would there be any cause for a sacrifice? Well, this gets into, I mean, it, it's sort of a side issue. I'll be as brief, promise about it, as, as, as I can, so we, we get to our questions. 
But, uh, you know, for instance, when we see the book of Ezekiel, we see that there's going to be a temple in the thousand-year reign of Christ. And we see that there are going to be things like sin offerings being offered. And uh, people go, whoa, wait a minute. The book of Hebrews says that, you know, God did away sacrifice once and for all when Jesus ended sacrifice with the sacrifice of his own uh, body and, and blood for our sins. And uh, so they'll say, oh, anybody that says there's going to be a rebuilt temple with sacrifices is being blasphemous or is denigrating uh, the, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus. Well, no, I don't believe so. I believe that Ezekiel is pretty straightforward about saying that there will be sacrifices during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Why? For the same reason that we celebrate communion. Mm. You know, we don't believe when we celebrate communion that Jesus is sacrificed again. Some churches do teach that. Uh, which churches, <laughs> which is uh, kind of uh, bad, uh, but uh, and they just need to read the book of Hebrews. But why do we do this? Well, Paul says that as you do it, you remember and show forth the Lord's death until he comes. And so we celebrate communion because we're remembering what Jesus did for us. In the same way, in the millennial reign, there will be a rebuilt temple and there will be sacrifices offered, not because these sacrifices are going to take away sins, but they're going to be a vivid picture of what Jesus did in order to take away our sins. They're going to be commemorative. They're not going to be cleansing, if you will. Mm. The cleansing's been finished. All that's going to be done by these sacrifices is remembering that Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. And so most people kind of miss the point when people brought sacrifice to the temple. It wasn't just to dispose of an animal or even necessarily in its totality, practically, to deal with their sins. That was the first step. But it was to have a barbecue, to enjoy some meat <laughs> in the presence of the Lord. So the fact that uh, we can still enjoy some uh, some uh, f uh, fine bowls of Bashan in mm -hmm. the Millennial Kingdom is a more positive note than a issue of what well, what's the fancy seminary term for salvation uh, soteriology yep that's yeah. it so well as far as the red heifer goes i just love what hebrews 9 said about it. it says the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean how much more then will the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to god cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so we might serve the living God. Mm. So why settle for less than the ultimate sacrifice? Right. Yeah, yeah. So. Wow, beautiful. Yeah. Marriage Supper of the Lamb, we got to eat something. I hope it's not crackers. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Block wants to know, uh, good evening, brethren. Uh, what's your take on the movie American Gospel? Uh, the concern was that Robert expressed was that uh, it seemed to portray a more reformed cessationist view. The cessationist is the view that the spiritual gifts that we saw portrayed in the New Testament have ceased for the modern-day church. Uh, so his take on the movie was that that was the perspective. Have you seen it? Do you have any opinion on it? Nope. Uh, you know, I have not seen it, uh, but uh, essentially the uh, point behind it is that uh, the true message of Christ has been distorted uh, through evangelical Christianity. They interview uh, Vadi Baucom, uh, Alistair Begg, a uh, number of uh, people, Ray Comfort, uh, others that we would uh, mention here on the program. John MacArthur, Nabil Qureshi uh, is in the film, uh, Paul Washer. 
uh, and uh, essentially uh, two points of view on it. Uh, Owen Strachan of the Gospel Coalition said that Christ uh, alone champions the true saving gospel. It unpacks the message with clarity and conviction. Critically, however, uh, Rick Pittick of the Baptist News Global said that Christ alone was small-minded and abusive uh, and uh, that uh, it was kind of stuck in a time warp, so to speak. Uh, you know, essentially, uh, what you get into uh, is uh, people dealing with, uh, say, the word faith movement, prosperity theology, uh, theological liberalism, the meaning of the atonement, these sort of things. Uh, so uh, American Gospel are a series of films that have been made along this particular line. Mm. Like any documentary, and uh, again, I've had some experience in uh, radio and television communications and the idea of developing documentaries, is that when you're watching a documentary, right, uh, you are sort of suckered in to the idea that this is a just the facts, ma'am, presentation. It's not fictitious, you know, it's not a cartoon, it's not a drama, it's a documentary, and it has interviews and so on, and so people say, well, this is a really factual presentation. But one of the things you're gonna discover about documentaries, like about everything else, is that uh, the people that uh, are in charge of putting the documentary together have a point of view. They have a message, a message that they're seeking to persuade you to believe, and they're using these different clips and statistics and uh, interviews to support uh, their particular point of view. So um, when you see something like that, uh, I guess my two cents worth is be a Berean. The Berean believers, Acts 17:11, were more noble-minded than those who were at Thessalonica, for they received the word with eagerness and searched the scriptures daily to find out if these things are really so. And you know, the the, the reason that I mention uh, the the interviews and the the people that uh, uh, that people tend to uh, look upon uh, it with with awe and respect uh, is this: um, we shouldn't be fanboys of individuals no matter how respectable they might be. We certainly learn from them. But our ultimate authority comes from God's word as uh, interpreted in a grammatical, literal, historical sense through the illuminating work of God's Holy Spirit. The take we want to have is not what this group believes or what this pastor thinks or what this movement is all about. We want to have God's take on these particular points of view. So you, you see something like American Gospel, and there's a number of uh, sequels uh, that uh, that they've made along the line. It's a documentary series on it. You, know, you can read it. I think it's kind of provocative, raises some, uh, some uh, good issues. But it's kind of like that uh, documentary that came out called Jesus Camp. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, someone had an ax to grind, mm -hmm and wanted to really make evangelical Christians look bad, so there you go. Mm -hmm. uh, the documentaries that are cranked out, I think it's a cottage industry, and the Duggar family with the 25 kids or however many they had. I mean, there's all kinds of these uh, you know, reality TV shows and documentaries that are made. But you have to understand that all of them have a perspective. All of them have a point of view. And if you're seeing something on Netflix, 
Um, I don't mean to be cynical, but my default position is if it's on Netflix, chances are it's going to be a pretty secularist point of view. Yeah, it's, very biased. It's, it's going hedonist. to have, it, it's going to have an axe to grind mm -hmm. along that line. So, so you know, uh, don't don't just be an uncritical consumer. Say, well, you know, they quoted these people, and you know, they showed this document, yeah. they showed this thing happening, so it must be be true. Uh, it's kind of like the conversations people are getting into these days about AI. And uh, mm -hmm. saw a really inter interesting interview with e Elon Musk, where Tucker Carlson said to him. Well, if AI, if AI is left to go to seed, how could we possibly uh, have a conviction in a court of law? Because everything could be, you know, persuasively changed and who would know what is true and what is not true? Well, in essence, um, we're already there, really, uh, in our media-saturated culture. You know, uh, I, I just remember the, uh, the words of the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who once said that in our society, falsehood is so established and the truth so obscure, unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. Mm. Uh, and it's only going to go to seed during the time of the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says that people are suckered in by the Antichrist for one reason. They did not receive the love of the truth in order they might be saved. Mm. So, you know, you got to know the truth before you can spot a lie, right? You guys do the spot yeah. the lie thing with our, our youth group. Yeah, we'll be doing that this Sunday. Yeah, and, and, and so when you do that, right, you're not trying to bombard them with counterfeits, right? What are you trying to do? I'm trying to show them, first of all, that usually the clips I show are uh, not as well thought through as they seem. I just put three things on a whiteboard. I say claims, I say evidence, and then I say problems, and then I let them fill out the rest. If they make a claim, we make note of it. We listen before we talk. When they provide evidence, we make note of it, usually not. And then when the problems come up, we can teach them about logical fallacies or accusations or how this fact doesn't match it. But the fact that the second board is oftentimes left blank says enough on its own. Yeah, and the bottom line is you want them to so understand God's truth that when a lie is shared, it stands out like a sore thumb. Yeah, and they know how to spot it. Yeah, mm. yeah. Would this be a fair assessment, having been to so many kinds of churches in my travels as an itinerant speaker, so many different styles, I tend to shy away from people who tend to overly criticize other churches, because a lot of times those criticisms are how churches practice certain traditions, styles of music, and ignore the central doctrinal message that that particular church focuses on, and that to be a Berean is not to criticize what kind of clothing you wear, the external secondary things, but more importantly, uh, if you want to be a good Berean, you study the, the whole doctrine of what's being taught, and most criticisms ignore the doctrine and just want to argue about, oh, that those guys use drums and a band, and, and these guys, you know, all wear suits and ties, and it just seems so superficial, many of the criticisms, not all, but many. Well, last night, uh, we uh, did a study in Ezekiel chapter 34 called What's Gone Wrong with a Sheepfold? And I think uh, Ezekiel 34, great passage to study because God takes to task the spiritual leaders of Israel, the shepherds that were just in it to kind of fatten themselves up and didn't really care for or even abusive towards the sheep. And God had some very strong words for those spiritual leaders. But he also had some very strong words for the sheep because the sheep were butting each other, the sheep were fouling the water, not considering uh, others just getting their needs met and really not caring uh, who was left to clean up the mess. Uh, 
And, you know, again, God not only looks at the shepherds in the church, he looks at the sheep. Mm -hmm. And then the final part of it, which was so encouraging, is that God paints this picture of what it's going to be like when the good shepherd, Jesus, as he identified himself in John chapter 10 and in John chapter 15. Uh, just beautiful picture of the fact that uh, one day, you know, the Lord himself is going to be shepherding his people, and it's going to be a glorious sort of thing. So while we're waiting for that glorious day, and while we've got bad shepherds and we've got headbutting sheep, what do we do? Well, the big question you got to ask yourself is this. What does it mean for me not to be part of the problem in the church, headbutting other sheep or being you know, abusive, lording over the flock, uh, exploiting other people for my own gain, uh, having untoward motivations in terms of any kind of service. And Lord, uh, you know, what, what does it mean for me to be different from all of that? Well, the, the, the bottom line is this. Uh, we have to realize what's possible for others is, is possible for us. Mm. And, uh, and that if we start getting distracted with analyzing the faults and flaws of a church we don't even belong to, yeah. Uh, a church that's not asking our opinion, right? That on didn't even come up in the conversation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, we're we're spinning our wheels now. On this program, obviously, uh, we do comparative religions yeah. and we we talk about aberrant groups and things like this. But we always try not to get involved with the subject of personalities as much as what the group proclaims and does it line up with the scripture. In that sense, we're to be discerning. But we shouldn't be judgmental of these other groups for a couple of reasons. I love what Romans 14 and verse 4 says. Who are you to judge another one's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he'll be able to stand, for God is able to make him stand. I think that's a great place to start. Mm. You know, God's the one who's going to judge. He's going to judge the false shepherds. He's going to judge the rowdy sheep. He doesn't need our help, right? Uh, but... For me, I don't want to be a false shepherd. I don't want to be a sheep that, you know, basically fouls the water for all the other mm -hmm. sheep in the flock because God takes a pretty dim view of that. So what can I do to make sure that doesn't happen? Well, one of the passages uh, that we read that I thought was so powerful, you know, when I was doing this study, uh, if we just took this one passage to heart, I think uh, things could really be different for us personally. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let us esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Boy, just imagine how different our church experience would be if instead of me sitting around saying, oh, that church that's up the freeway from us, boy, they do this and this and this, and we really need to be telling our people that this church over there, well, those people aren't in that church. They're in our church. You know, who am I to judge somebody else's church? If somebody from my church goes over to that other church, well, you know, what's going on there floats their boat spiritually. Why would I want them to stay in my church if, you know, they're bored or they're, they, they, they don't feel like uh, the Lord is using them there or the Lord is moving or working. Go someplace where you really feel like God is using you. You know, it, it, it's not that we don't care about people. It's not that we don't want people uh, to uh, learn their spiritual lessons. 
it's not that we don't care about people maybe going down uh, a road where the uh, the bridge is out as far as a church is is concerned or a group is concerned and, and we do have uh, an important uh, function I think in the church to shepherd the flock and, and to be concerned about people making spiritual decisions but you know what I've discovered hmm. uh, this is true in my life and I don't know if it's true in your guys life people can tell you what's right and wrong and they can warn you about something and you know I never get it until I learned from the school of hard knocks hmm. and sometimes people got to learn from the school of hard knocks hmm. yeah. that they, they got to go to that place where they thought the grass was greener only to discover that there's headbutting sheep and exploitive shepherds, and maybe the place they came from wasn't so bad after all. But if you don't give people the freedom to be able to follow what they feel is the leading of the Lord, that's when we start to get a little bit controlling. Dare I say, a little bit culty. Yeah. You know. So you know, let's just try to take care of business mm-hmm. in our part of the sheepfold, yeah. and then uh, Lord will take care of the rest of it stuff thank you scott thanks for that affirmation mac d was wondering if you've ever heard of les feldick uh he's been listening to him lately and enjoys his teachings on the bible any any idea who that is and any ideas about them yeah he uh, passed away fairly recently um in his through the bible study he was going through the bible verse by verse obviously when it comes to nuances and secondary issues nothing too damaging uh for those of you who maybe follow chuck smith in his c uh, 3000 series whenever he'd go through the bible verse by verse they'd have like a c thousand that whole kind of deal but um just like with chuck there were times when he was going through that long journey and things like the gap theory came up and he eventually would change his mind on that or just leave it into uh, realms of future speculation. Um, Most of the people who are critical of his ministry make a overemphasis on the idea of him having a dispensationalist view, the idea that God at certain times and in certain ways has spoken to us by the prophets, but now has spoken to us through his son. I guess uh, they don't like the book Hebrews, but uh, when it comes to the idea of, I'm joking, by the way, dispensationalism is the idea of same means of the gospel, but different categories of how it's related to people. Um, They didn't like that. They didn't think that the idea of salvation by grace through faith being the carte blanche, always God's way of doing it, and then, of course, the circumstance in which you did it was how God revealed that one way. Um, I don't disagree with him, so you're not going to hear a complaint from me. When it comes to the concerns people have about a bunch of, you know, personality conflicts or secondary issues, see the previous question, but um, be discerning. Whenever you hear someone, anyone, talking to you about the Bible, us included, look it up, and I'd say if he's uh, teaching the full counsel of God's Word, then God bless him. May his tribe increase. I guess he has blessed him. We'll see him later. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Yeah. Thank you for that. Good. Uh, someone wanted to know, does Second Corinthians 12, 2, where Paul mentions apparently three levels of heaven, is this what Paul is trying to suggest, that there are actually three levels of heaven? Or well, well the word level isn't used there. I'll just be as direct with this as, as we can. He talks about the third heaven. Well, when the Bible speaks about the heavens, uh, Barak, uh, yeah, Barashith, Elohim, Hashemayim, Wahaaretz, the first uh, uh, verse of the Bible, God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. 
uh, you know, it is a plurality there. Well, why is the word heavens used in a plurality? Well, because as we see Scripture interpreting Scripture, we see that the term heavens can be used in Scripture to describe the place where the clouds make their way across the atmosphere and the birds fly. Uh, the word is used to describe that. It is also described as the place and abode of the stars and the planets in the galaxies. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. Uh, but it also refers to heaven as the place where God directly manifests himself spiritually, the spiritual realm. Yeah. That's the third heaven, if you will. Paul was taken and given a tour, if you will, of what the third heaven was. And it's just amazing how restrained he is as far as how he relates that. He said he's heard inexpressible things which would not be lawful for a man to utter. Now, it's kind of the, uh, I could tell you what I saw, but it'd be a crime. Hmm. And uh, there's the, some who believe that the reason Paul didn't elaborate was because the apostle John was going to be given the responsibility by God to give us an insight into what hmm. it means uh, to hear the spirits they come up here, be able to see what that spiritual realm is all about. Maybe so. Yeah. So that's that's what the third heaven is. There's not levels. It's not like, well, you were kind of a good Christian, but you sort of messed up. So you get to be in the kind of the uh, low rent district of heaven. You're a pretty good guy. I guess you tithe. You get to be middle class heaven. But ooh, up there with the Billy Grahams, the Chuck Smiths, and all these people, that's where you want to. No, no, that's Mormonism. That's not something. I don't see your name on the list. Yeah. Oh, you're downstairs. You're yeah. one floor down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for your time and your insights and the hard work that I know that you've spent so many years in study. And thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the program. We'll be here again tomorrow, same place, same time. So please chime in with your questions and have a great evening. God bless you. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.